Well, we return this morning to our little mini-series that we began last time from the book of 3 John. So if you have your Bible, open it to 3 John. And just listen as I read to what is considered the shortest letter in the entire New Testament, 3 John. John begins by writing, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. For I rejoice greatly when brothers came and bore witness to your truth, that is, how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever work you do for the brothers and are doing this though they are strangers and they bore witness to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, receiving nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that they may be fellow workers with the truth. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not welcome what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will bring to remembrance his deeds, which he does, unjustly, despairing us with wicked words. And not satisfied with this, he himself does not welcome the brothers either, and he forbids those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good witness from everyone and from the truth itself. And we add our witness, and you know that our witness is true. I had many things to write you, but I am not willing to write them to you with pink and ink, pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly, and we will speak face to face. Peace be with you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. It is said that probably the most famous letter ever written in American history can be traced back to what is known as Abraham Lincoln's letter to widow Bixby. Now, along with the Gettysburg Address and his second inaugural speech, one of the Lincoln's most revered literary legacies is this letter. The letter was published in Boston Transcript on November 25th, 1864, the same day that Miss Bixby received it. And it goes as following. Dear Madam, I have been shown in the files of the War Department a statement of the Adjunct General of Massachusetts that you are the mother of five sons who have died gloriously on the field of battle. I feel how weak and fruitless must be any word of mine which should attempt to beguile you from the grief of a loss so overwhelming, but I cannot refrain from tendering you the consolation that may be found in the thanks of the Republic they died to save. I pray that our Heavenly Father may assurge the anguish of your bereavement and leave you only the cherished memory of the loved and lost and the solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice upon the altar of freedom. Yours very sincerely and respectfully, A. Lincoln. You know, short letters, as we have found over the course of our study, can be very transformational. They can be both extremely comforting on one side, and on the other side, they can be very condemning to others. The fact that a man like Abraham Lincoln would take the time to put pen and ink together to inscribe just a few paragraphs to this widowed mother would be life-changing for her. It would be profound. 
Every word would be treasured. Every sentence read and reread over and over again because it means so much, this word of encouragement. We long to know what people do matters. We long to know what we do matters. We long to know what is happening to them has meaning and purpose. And so as we said last time, as we opened up this book of Third John, it is a letter like that. It is a letter more than coming from the hand of a famous president. Is Third John comes from the hand of a legendary apostle. And though there are no sons that have died in the battle and no widows who are being addressed here, in this inspired piece of communication, it's used by the Holy Spirit to both comfort the sons of God who are fighting for the faithful and to scold the faithless for their shame. And I say that because last week we saw this to be true. Every time I preach a talk, I don't know what it is. Uh, that's okay. Um, just get, would you mind? Thank you so much. Uh, <laughs> Though I say that last week because first and foremost, we had the portrait of a man named Gaius, Gaius, a faith-filled minister of the gospel, a man whom the apostle John loved from his heart, a man who inspired the great apostle to paint a portrait of Gaius with words that see him in this letter. It starts in verse 1, doing a little bit of a review, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. We mentioned this last time, one of the greatest affirmations a man or woman could ever have in their life would be this kind of affirmation. It would be the affirmation from an apostle, one of the greatest professions ever uttered that an apostle of Jesus Christ, a man who walked with him and ministered with him and leaned on his bosom and took care of his mother, would be this singular apostle of love, would say to you in a letter that he loved you in truth. To hold that letter in your hands and to be able to see words like that from a great man like John would be an unbelievable gift, but it gets even better. Not only did we see last time the profession of apostolic love, but now in verse 2, the kind-hearted John prays for Gaius as well. Verse 2, Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. Now, as a review, again, the fact that most people would actually pray for your spiritual health to match your physical health or your physical health to match your spiritual health is really quite something. But the Apostle John does that. He is so confident of Gaius' soul condition that he doesn't even hesitate to pray that his body's health would parallel his heart health for the Lord. It's an amazing prayer for an amazing minister. And then John goes on, and he furs that to proclaim the deep joy that Gaius gives him in his heart. He says in verse 3, For I rejoice greatly when brothers came and bore witness to your truth, that is, how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And again, we were seeing even last time how this influence of a person's life, the influence of Gaius' life on the Apostle John and how the basic principle here is how the influence and how we decide to live our lives can be so impactful to others and how the impact of a life lived for the truth affects those in the church, not just the local church, but the church at large as well is truly pivotal and necessary for us to know. And so when the news came to the elder was not only that Gaius held on to his teachings, but he continued to walk in the truth. That is, he continued to order his life in accordance with the truth. John's joy just overflowed, which the aging apostle expresses by speaking next of his confidence in the ministry of Gaius, 
that he's committed himself to. You see this in verse 5. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever work you do for the brothers and are doing this through, though they are strangers. And they bore witness to your love before the church. Now, if you're keeping up with me, the Apostle John is praising Gaius for the work that he has done for the traveling teachers, this is very key, and the missionaries who are strangers among them. And he acknowledges his confidence in the love that he has for them before the church. They confess his love and they confess their love for him. This is the love of strangers that makes this letter such a testimony to the grace of hospitality, as you shall see in a moment, however, much more than just hospitality. And then at the very end of our time last time, we had John unfolding for us and all those who would read this letter for thousands of years after that, the plan for apostolic ministry. And he says that in verse 6, you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God, for they went out for the sake of the name, receiving nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that they may be fellow workers with the truth. So what is so helpful here, what is so encouraging here is that Gaius is in the midst of all of this. He even understands there's a plan to the ministry, that there's a plan for apostolic ministry, that there's a plan for sending off these workers with the truth on their way, verse 7 says, for the sake of the name. Now here it is before us in these verses, in the instruction, motivation, and incentive for the church's involvement in missions from the great apostle himself. And this last point is one that I didn't really get to develop that much last time, and I want to develop it more fully in this next portrait. But suffice it to say, very important for us, especially I think as we come into the new year, that there is a plan. There's a plan to carry out what the Lord commanded in the Great Commission. There is a plan, and either, listen, you are supporting the plan, or you're an impediment to the plan. You're either supporting the plan or an impediment, and the great apostle is going to show us today exactly who that impediment was in the first century. Now, if you remember last time, I know there's a lot, and I know I'm going quick. I'm going to try to slow down. Uh, in 2 John, that letter that precedes 3 John, that letter speaks of a false teacher and false teachers that were threatening the church in those early days. And John's command to them in that letter is to not receive them into their homes. Do not receive them into their homes. And many of you are familiar with that idea. That's well supported. But here in 3 John, we have the apostle speaking of the true messengers. Those are not false messengers, but the ones that John commends Gaius for receiving because that was part of God's plan. And in this plan, where he is receiving the right people into the church, there is this one man in the church who was actually opposed to the command to receive them, even though the Apostle John himself had written them to do just that. So if you're keeping up, this isn't just a letter about hospitality. And I want you to think about this. If John is doing just a treatment on the command to be hospitable, we could go to other passages in the Bible, or to be hospitable because possibly you're entertaining angels unaware, as Hebrew says. But instead, and this is key, he's emphasizing the kind of hospitality that to encourage hospitality to the service of strangers because they had been sent out by John for the sake of the name. In other words, these traveling teachers are, are commissioned by the great apostle to have the great commission go all throughout the world. And so the theme of hospitality is something that's more than just 
keeping your home in such a way that's orderly so other Christians can come and be entertained and, and comforted. What's more instructive here is the way that kind of hospitality is met or declined because what concerns the great apostle is the furtherance of the gospel in this kind of hospitality to the ends of the earth, to the great work that he had yet been given. So it's really about the acceptance or the resistance to apostolic authority. I want you to think about this. This is really going to be, this whole letter and what we're about to find out today is about the acceptance of or resistance to the apostolic authority that underlines this hospitality, knowing that this letter is going to either advance the cause of Christ or block the gospel. It's either going to advance the cause of Christ or block the gospel from reaching the nations. This is a letter concerning how humble love or sinful pride can either further or block the purposes of God in his church as he examines three different men. We've already looked at Gaius, and so that's where we left off last time. So after commending the humble love of Gaius, now we're going to move on today to the sinful pride of a man named Diotrephes. Diotrephes. We move from a portrait of a faith-filled minister to a portrait of a faithless meddler, which is the title of my message today, a portrait of faithless meddler, Diotrephes. And I'm going to read you his section again to remind you as we work our way through this. Starting in verse 9 to 11, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not welcome what we say. And for this reason, if I come, I will bring to remembrance his deeds, which he does, unjustly despairing us with wicked words. And not satisfied with this, he himself does not welcome the brothers either. And he forbids those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. This entire section here is what I would call the portrait of Diotrephes the meddler. And maybe not with paint and pencil does this portrait come to us, but with words and instruction. And the Apostle John wastes no effort to dive into this so that we know exactly what he's talking about in a very straightforward, full of grace, but straightforward to the bone type of matter. Now, when I say faithless meddler, you might be asking yourself, what's a meddler? Uh, I've heard that before, but I'm not exactly sure what that might mean. A meddler is a person who tries to change or have an influence on things that are not his or her responsibility. 1 Peter 4.15, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. This is the only time it's actually showing up in all the New Testament. And it's used to have this trait that at first kind of seems a little bit minor in comparison to Peter's previous terms. But it shows that this sin is just like a crime that any other sin would be and needs and forfeits the Holy Spirit's comfort. The word literally means one who meddles in things alien to his calling, an agitator, a troublemaker. This might be too light of a term for diatrophies, but it describes him in part, and we'll see how that works. Now, who is this man named Diotrephes? Well, nothing is known about Diotrephes more than what we have here in this page. This is the only section of of Scripture that speaks to him. Actually, it was a very uncommon name. There are many theories about who he was. Diotrephes means God-nurtured or, better, nurtured by Zeus. Nurtured by Zeus, so most likely he was a Gentile. 
He was said that some people thought he was the author of a new sect, a new religious sect, that there's no evidence of that, however, at least not in the letter. And if he had been a leader of a new sect, probably the apostle would have cautioned Gaius against the theological influence of Diotrephes, but he doesn't. Many have supposed that he was a self-appointed bishop or pastor uh, in the church where he resided. But again, there's no evidence other than what we just have before us. And since John wrote to the church, commending to strangers to them, it would seem hardly possible that he was the leader. Others have supposed he was a deacon and had charge of the funds of the church, that he refused to let go of the money that the strangers would need to be able to, uh, be able to move on and to be able to have this mission uh, go forth. Uh, but again, we don't know that much, but more on that in just a second. But all this is just background history. All of this is just what most commentators will tell you is conjecture. We don't know. All we have before us is what we have before us. And it's impossible to find out at this point if he had an office or what kind of office it was. But definitely we know this. He was a man of influence. He was a man of influence. That's very apparent in the reading of the text. He was proud. He was ambitious. He desired to rule over other people, and he prevailed, as you heard me read, on the church to not receive the strangers that were commended to them by the apostle. That part is very, very clear. Now, I want to spend some time this morning looking at this man's portrait in terms of what I call faithlessness, faithlessness. And I think it's very important because there's enough here for us to think through with the time that we have. But before we run into these traits headlong and these brushstrokes of faithlessness, if you will, I want to begin by backing up and look at that kind of clear portion of Scripture that I talked about in verses 7 and 8, where we can use that as a contrast to what we're going to see in this man's life, okay? So we'll go backwards. If you're taking notes, you could call this the principle of faithfulness, the principle of faithfulness, and I'm just kind of repackaging what I did from last time, but it says... They went out for the sake of the name, receiving nothing from the Gentiles, verse 7. Therefore, verse 8, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. Now, what you have here is very, very important. This is the motivation for faithfulness. They went out for the sake of the name, the marginalization of the world. They received nothing from the Gentiles. I'll explain that in a second. And the mandate for the church in missions, which is clearly so that we may be fellow workers in the truth. So let me unpack that for you a little bit to see what that really means. I, I told you last time, the only way for the truth for which our Lord died to be able to flourish and expand and transform nations, not just local churches, is only to be understood if it is faithfully taught. The only way it can be faithfully taught and spread is if faithful teachers would travel all throughout the region and all throughout the world and tell the world about Christ and the truth about his substitutionary atonement. And that's the same truth we remarked last time that Apostle Paul talks about in Romans 10, where he says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him who they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they're sent? How... Will they be receiving the word of truth unless they are sent? So here, John is merely saying that, back to third John, the mission is still the mission. The mission is still the mission. And because not everyone in the local church context can go teach the nations, 
not because of any other thing other than the fact that they had resident local identities in the community, in the church, because not everyone at the local church can just go and disciple the nations. That doesn't mean that we can't obey the Great Commission. That doesn't mean that we can't, in a sense, live vicariously through fellow workers who are skilled in the Scriptures, who are available to be sent with the truth to the nations, and therefore we become fellow workers with them in the truth. And so the motivation for this calling is the sake of the name, the sake of the name which is above every name, for the sake of the name Jesus Christ. That is what he's speaking of. So this is a great vital work. They had a motivation for doing the work, is inseparable from the commission that Christ is calling them to have, and it's all for the sake of the name, which is found five other times in the New Testament, but always under the context where people suffer for account of their witness to Christ. In one place, Paul actually uses the sake of the name, speaking of the grace he received to bring about the obedience of faith to the Gentiles, which is special. But it's obvious here, as it says, the Gentiles were not helping them. The Gentiles were not going to help them, meaning the pagans, of course, aren't going to understand the purpose of the Great Commission. It's impossible for them to do that. They're not going to travel along with the teachers to support traveling teachers to establish churches. These men are not just any men. They're not just men who studied the scriptures and then decided, hey, I'm going to make a living off of the church because it felt like that's their preferred profession. You might be a tent maker. I'm just going to be a traveling preacher. And then they're just self-appointed travelers. That's not the case at all. These men were vetted and they were commended and they were sent from one church to another church, in this case, with apostolic witness apostolic witness to appeal for hospitality in all these churches as they work through because the stamp of approval is on them. They are part of our Christian fellowship. And yes, they need not only lodging and food, but finances, financial help. So this is what Gaius was doing. Gaius and the teachers that loved him told the church that the apostle John was a part of was serving, that they were being supported by Gaius from this church. And John loved Gaius for doing this. That's why his joy was made complete. But not everyone in the church of Gaius was thankful for the cause of the name. Interstage left Diotrephes, a man who forever has his name associated with unfaithfulness and faithlessness in the pages of Holy Scripture. How would you like that to be your leaving legacy. Look at Third John, Dad. Who's that? That's me, son. That's me. So let's look at this man's reputation, his resume for a while in this picture, because it's here that we're going to see this portrait that John paints of him. We're going to see three principles of faithlessness, three principles of faithlessness being contrasted in this from what we just saw as a principle of faithfulness, three aspects of faithlessness seen in diatrophies that we need to take a heart We need to take to heart in our own lives because we don't want to be proven faithless as well. Now, I could put it this way, if I could put it this way, it is because deep down inside of each of us, there is a selfishness. And sometimes that selfishness dominates people's lives. It's a profound sense of living for myself. It's a profound sense of my way or the highway. I'm living for my agenda, what pleases me, what makes me live. I'm placing my life and preferences 
not on the altar of sacrifice, but on the altar of being praised. And there's a threat to that. There's a threat here as much as there's a threat in even our church when character defects in a man or a woman become so profound that they dominate. What we have here is a series of traits that are bent on crushing, listen to this, the commission of Christ. These are character traits that are bent on crushing the commission of Christ, and they're dedicated to destroying the destiny of the church. So the first aspect of faithlessness here is, it's horribly obvious, obviously you can tell, faithlessness is always marked by pride. Faithlessness is always marked by pride. If you're taking notes, the pride of faithlessness He says in verse 9, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not welcome what we say. We have here a level of pride that is so unthinkable, that is so hard to wrap your arms around, and yet it's so important that we grasp what he's saying. This is a level of pride that the church, the church that the apostle says he wrote a letter to, most likely the same church that Gaius and Diotrephes were a part of, that this letter that John wrote was never welcomed by Diotrephes. It was never welcomed. It was never accepted. He stood against what John had said, or he publicly spoke ill of it, but for whatever reason, the letter did not survive. I mentioned it last time, and I think James was here and asked me, not every letter that the apostles wrote were inspired but every letter that they wrote that was included in the canon of Scripture was inspired. I hope that distinction is clear. John wrote five inspired letters, the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the book of Revelation, all which were inspired by the Holy Spirit. But here, he's speaking of a letter, I wrote something, verse 9, to the church that wasn't inspired or it would have survived. Regardless, when it came and it was read, it was not welcomed by Diotrephes. Now, <laughs> let that sink in for a moment. Let that, let that just kind of percolate in your mind. The one whom Jesus loved, the one who took care of his mother Mary, the one who ate with his head on the Lord's bosom, the one who revealed for us a vision of the entire age to come, who chronicled the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we might believe in him, his writings, his writings were not welcomed by Diotrephes. And the purpose, the reason being stated here is pride. Pride. He loved being first among them. First among who? The brothers of the church. A prideful disposition towards wanting to lead the church regardless of the truthfulness of the desire. Regardless of the veracity of what it was that he believed, first among those in his local body and first among even apostolic authority. Do you understand that? First among not only the people in his church, but also first before the Apostle John. The letter he received, yes, was not an inspired letter, but it was authoritative nonetheless. It was authoritative, but it didn't matter to this man because his cause is the only cause. His way is the only way. The verb here, literally wishing to be first, is found here for the first time in Greek literature, but it is well attested in that time. So first over who? First over everyone. He wants to be first over everyone. There's so much to say here, but I think it's worth noting that even while the disciples were still walking on the earth, 
before Paul was beheaded, before Peter was crucified, as tradition tells us, and before John breathed his last, that ongoing, never-ending opposition to the mission of Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of souls was happening. And the reason is usually pride. It's just pride. You know, I don't know if you think of your pride as you ought to. I know I don't. I think thinking of pride is sometimes a a trivial thing, as a a common uh, sin that we all suffer from. But that's not true. That's not true. And especially, folks, religious pride. Religious pride is the worst kind of pride. And they are religious. So don't let the fact that they seem spiritual throw you in the church because the most religious men on the earth crucified Jesus, right? The scribes and the Pharisees who seated themselves in the chair of Moses, Matthew 23, 1, they love to be noticed by men. They love to pray in public. They love to be seen as men of God, but they were ministers of Satan. But that being said, remember, and this is tough, that even the apostles themselves are told to have fought with each other for preeminence. Quickly, go to Matthew 20 and keep your finger there in 3 John, but Matthew 20. Uh, It's a little surprising sometimes. I think we forget, uh, starting in verse 20, we read these words that I think will be helpful. Matthew 20, 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he, Jesus, said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. Boy, that's a mother for you, isn't it? I mean, what are you going (laughs) to command? But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They said to him, we are able. Yeah, yeah, we're able. He said to them, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and my left, this is not mine to give, but it's for those to whom has been prepared by my father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. By the way, who were the sons of Zebedee? Do you remember? John and James. The same John that's writing this letter, that's the same son of Zebedee. And so John is writing these words and he's saying, the best of men are men at best. Without a doubt, that is true. But regardless, diatrophies has to be confronted. So let's break this pride down a little bit. Let's kind of look at, let's peel back this onion, okay? First of all, we see here the pride of faithlessness in desiring first place among others in the church to be in direct opposition to what we just read here about the Lord and what he taught about ambition. Greatness among them, but it lasts not first. Greatness among them, but lasts not first. The Lord said the way up is down. The Lord said that the way towards greatness is humility. And yet, even having Christ as their physical example before them, they could not, they would not humble themselves. So 
the question is, why are men so blind? And I want to include the ladies in that. I'm not just throwing us under the bus. Why, why, are, why, are, why, are, the, why are humanity, why is humanity so blind to this? You know, how can a man be so obsessed with power and wanting to be first? And by the way, the implication here of the text is that Diotrephes did accomplish such influence and power in the church. Maybe he wasn't a pastor, but maybe he was a lay leader in some capacity. How can a man like that be so drunk with pride that he's blind to his own unlikeness to Jesus? He believed he should be first over Gaius. Sure, okay, I can understand that. But he believed he should be first over the apostle John. How do I, how do I know that? Well, think about it. His pride, and this is key, his pride was in believing that his own personal discernment about what should or should not be in the church, in his little church, holds more weight than the apostles' words. That's, that's an impressive kind of pride. The, the pride of thinking that his influence should be respected in the church over the apostles' influence is mind-boggling. And it's dangerous. It's dangerous. J.C. Wilde once said, Ambition, self-esteem, and self-conceit lie deep at the bottom of all men's hearts and often in the hearts where they are the least suspected. Thousands imagine that they are humble who cannot bear to see an equal more honored and favored than themselves. Few indeed can be found who rejoice heartily in a neighbor's promotion over their own heads. The quantity of envy and jealousy in the world is a glaring proof of the prevalence of pride. Men would not envy a brother's advancement if they had not a secret thought that their own merit was greater than his. So this love for being first reigns supreme. There is a second aspect of faithlessness as seen in diatrophies that we need to take heart so that we are not proved to be faithless as well. Not only the pride of faithlessness, but now the penalty of faithlessness. The penalty of faithlessness, and we see this in verse 10. For this reason, if I come, I will bring to remembrance his deeds, which he does, unjustly despairing us with wicked words. There he is, uh, as Gaius probably is reading this letter out loud to the whole church. We can't be sure of that. That's a possibility. With this open reproof, clearly communicated for everybody to hear, and the penalty of this man's faithlessness being exposed to utter shame. The, that, what a force of penalty it must have been to Diotrephes for him to embrace. Now, I use this term faithlessness, and let, let me define what I'm talking about because I keep making sure I'm pronouncing it in such a way where you understand the distinction. Faithlessness. Um, I want you to know what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. I, I'm not saying that Diotrephes was not a believer, but there's absolute no evidence in this letter that he had faith. He was faithless. He had no faith. He was a Pharisee or a Sadducee in his heart. He was a man driven by power and pride and preeminence. And the only way to deal with a man like that in the church, listen, is to penalize him, to penalize him upfront and personal. You have to go before them with the humiliation of words and the humiliation of their deeds. This isn't a penalty of condemnation. This is the wheat and tares will make themselves clear in the end, but there's a penalty that demands change. 
Even when the apostle here uses, when he says, if I come, he's, he's presuming that I'm going to grant you some grace, but if I come, it will be severe. Time and truth go hand in hand. Everywhere you go, there you are. You can't escape the things that you do. You can't escape the ramifications or consequences of what you do. So let's look first his deeds of faithlessness because they're going to be remembered in the church and they're already remembered in Holy Scripture. John's saying, I'm going to call him out. I'm going to call him out. He will be remembered according to what he has done against the apostle and as we shall see against others in the church. And his words of faithlessness will be remembered before the church. This is where I get the term meddler from. He unjustly despairing us with wicked words as the legacy standard translates it. You can also translate that as to gossip, only found here in the New Testament. There's other forms of it. In the adjective form, is found in 1 Timothy 5.13, where people are warned against being idle, uh, gossips, busybodies. There's a sense that he enjoyed speaking falsely slander. Verse 10 translates literally as gossiping evil words against us, indicating that the apostle John thought Diotrephes was speaking slanderously against him. And again, we don't know the specifics. It's not important that we know the specifics. What the problem is with the apostle John, but what doesn't seem to be, it doesn't seem to be a theological issue. That's the thing I want you to pick up. That's why we don't think this is a a sect that he was trying to create or some kind of foreign, uh, new kind of theology. It seems not to be theological. We don't know. We don't have evidence for that. But what you do see, it's personal. It's slanderous. It's evil. Whatever it is that he's saying against the great apostle John, it's bad. And you know something? You unfortunately see this. When men graduate from here, the master's seminary, and he goes to a church, there's always a diatrophies there. There's always a diatrophies. They always say the man picking you up from the airport is the same man that's going to pack your bags to leave. <laughs> he, he's diatrophies. He's the, he's the Ebenezer Scrooge that comes with a smile, trying to pretend that he is a man that is not going to be diatrophies, but he is. And that man, according to our Grace Advance guys that we work with too, these young guys have no idea that there's a guy in this church that's power hungry. He's power hungry, and he goes to this church, and the guy smiles, and he shakes his head in agreement when he preaches. But as time unfolds, he starts to slander, and he gossips, and he spreads all kind of false rumors about his character. And people start to question his character because of this man's love for power. This other man is demeaned. Yes, it still happens in the church today. It happens in every church. We just don't know where all the diatrophies are, but they're here. And this is my point. They need to be called out. And they must be called out in such a way that's biblical. And that's what John's doing here. But otherwise, it's a cancer. And it spreads throughout the entire church. And it's this gangrene that people talk about slanderously, the man of God. Do you know most men that actually end up leaving the pulpit, most churches that let go of their their pastor, don't let them go because of poor preaching. They they don't even care about that. It's this slanderous gangrene of this faithless man. So this faithless man must be confronted for his faithlessness. There's a third aspect of faithlessness, as we see in diatrophies that we need to take to heart so that we are proven faithful and not faithless. Not only the pride of faithlessness, the penalty of faithlessness, but now I want to show you the proof of faithlessness, the proof of faithfulness, faithless, faithlessness. And you see this 
as he goes on bringing into the church, verse 10, talking about the deeds and not satisfying with this, he does not welcome the brothers. And not satisfying this, verse 10, he himself does not welcome the brothers either. And he forbids those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. You want proof of Diotrephes' faithlessness? You want proof that this man's love for first place had gone to his head and shoulders over gossiping evil about the great apostle? The proof of this man's faithlessness is that he was, listen to this, intentionally blocking traveling teachers, early missionaries, from receiving support from those in the church, from getting hospitality and funds. He was intentionally disciplining those in the church who wanted to support those who had a great commission missionary heart for the lost. And I know this is difficult to wrap around your head. It's, it's very clearly what's being communicated here, though. People always accuse leaders in the church for pointing out the defiance of biblical truth and naming and putting a name on it. But that's exactly what the apostles are doing here. Let's look at some of these proofs, because they are proofs. I'm going to give them to you up front, then I'm going to repeat them again. He does not welcome traveling teachers of the gospel personally. He just forbids the church to grant them hospitality corporately, and he disciplines the members to encur- that encourage the mission individually. So let me unpack that for you, just to get those proofs a little bit more in depth. This is the proof of his faithlessness. First, he does not welcome the traveling teachers of the gospel personally. What does that mean? What am I I saying when I say that? In other words, he's the one that says, I don't want to associate with you because most likely you associate with the apostle John and I don't want his influence in my little kingdom. I'm going to be first, not him, not his friends, not his traveling teachers. I'm going to be first. So he's going to stop the missionaries. He is not going to do what Gaius did so freely that was so commended, supporting the men who went out for the sake of the name. No, 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 no. Diotrephes is the only name that he wants to have heard. And he supports his name and will not tolerate any deviation. You think about that. Think about that. By not accepting faithful brethren, those who were following God's word, it meant that Diotrephes was enforcing a standard that went beyond God's word, beyond apostolic authority, beyond the teaching of the apostles. John in 2 John 9 wrote, anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. And then John warns Christians in 2 John 10 and 11 to not receive such a one or else they would be guilty of having fellowship with him in his evil deeds. He also, moving on, forbids the church to grant them hospitality corporately. And again, I've mentioned this before. It's it's mind-blowing if you just take a moment to think it through. And that's all we're doing is just thinking it through. The theme of hospitality is important, but what's instructive here is the way this kind of hospitality, again, is either met or blocked because of what concerns the great apostle. This really is about the acceptance of or resistance to apostolic authority that underlines this hospitality, knowing that these men were either advancing Christ or they were blocking the gospel. And what is ironic is even those pagans in ancient times, honored hospitality. They honored hospitality. And remember, I said that Diotrephes' name means nurtured by Zeus. Remember I said, get this, commentator William Barclay. In the ancient world, hospitality was a sacred duty. 
Strangers were under the protection of Zeus. Zeus, the god of strangers. The ancient world had a system of guest friendships whereby families in different parts of the country undertook to give each other members hospitality when the occasion arose. So even in the face of his pagan background and his Christian profession, he's denying both of them by denying them hospitality. He forbids hospitality, it says. He forbids the saints to support these men. You can't pray for them. You can't lead them and stay in your home. You can't lend them anything. Otherwise, we will find a place. You you would lose a place in the offering plate. If you give them anything, then you're not giving to this church, which means you're not giving to me. We're building my kingdom, not the kingdom. This is wicked. This is so wicked, just as John says. And we can't be sure, as I mentioned earlier, if he was a treasurer or not. Some traditions say so. But remember, there was another man in biblical history who was over the money and guarded the purse of filthy people, filthy lucre, and his name was Judas. And he was very similar in the same way. It's interesting how it's power and money go together, how the pride and, and money and power go together. His rhetoric, his rhetoric was this. I don't support the apostle John. I don't support the missionaries he sends. I don't support the message he allows. So let his church fund their travels. Let, let his church find the resources to send them on their way. Not my church, not over my dead body. These offerings are needed to further our outreach here locally where we can grow the church, but forbid. That is the kind of influence. I forbid generosity. I forbid hospitality to anyone outside these four walls. And if you defy me, we're almost done here. Then he goes into, he disciplines the members who encourage the mission individually. Now, can you imagine that? Can you imagine? He puts them out of the church. It's possible that this is what was happening to Gaius. It's possible, perhaps, word on the street was Gaius had helped these traveling missionaries coming through, and because of that, he was preparing for the church to discipline him. Maybe we don't know. So the apostle John writes to him and says, look, I'm on your side. I don't know what he's going to do, but I'm on your side. I support you. Could you, could you picture that? You, you hear from Ga- that Gaius was put out of the church. Did you hear that? No. What happened? What happened? Adultery? No. Theft? No. Heresy? No. Th- then what? Generosity to missionaries. <laughs> put him out of the church. Boy, <laughs> if that was the deal here at Grace Church, you know how many of you would be put out of the church? <laughs> A lot of you because you're so generous to missionaries. You're so generous in your giving. In fact, this year's Christmas letter from Pastor John is dedicated to the faith promise of our missionaries above and beyond the regular budget. Yes, we have missionaries here at Grace Community Church, and they are trained and and disciplined and carefully examined, and we send them over to serve. And when you see that list of missionaries, you can give full support and full confidence. But if you choose to give to some men that came out of the Master's Seminary or or join heirs that aren't a part of official Grace Community Church missionaries, we're not going to call you out before the church. We're we're, we're not going to... That's narcissism run amok. This This is someone that is so dangerous, so harmful, that the Apostle John had to prove it to the church. There are still men in the church like Diotrephes, men who have drifted into ministry because there's possibility of ambition, because there's a possibility that they can perform, have a platform for their self-exaltation. But usually those men can be dealt with 
if they're identified, if they can be proven, if they're confronted. And so the question remains for us in just the minutes we have left, who would follow Diotrephes? Who would possibly want to follow Diotrephes? The question has been asked before. Diotrephes should have been marked and withdrawn from the church, and he was not. And the fact that the apostle identifies him as a man who ought not to be followed, and yet he still has influence in the church, is a warning to all of us. So let me just end with this question. Sometimes people are drawn to self-styled big personalities. Sometimes they're drawn to dictator kind of speech makers. They're too lazy, and this is what I want to behold or put before you. They're too lazy or distracted to go to the scriptures to see if what these men teach is true. And because they're not Bereans, because they're not holding up the word of God, the apostolic teachings, uh, comparing them to what's happening in their church, diatrophies have a place. But what do we do because of this? What's the kind of witness that we can have? What would be the next most logical thing for us to look at? Well, look at this. Right after discussing diatrophies, John wrote in John, 3 John 11, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God, and the one who does evil has not seen God. There is a model to be followed. And the model is imitating what is good. And we're going to see that next time in the life of Demetrius, because he is seen as good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for even the negative example of Diotrephes, because it is a shock to our systems to know that men and women exist in the church calling themselves believers while practicing evil deeds, slandering those who are faithful. We ask that you might impress upon our own hearts how we should look at our own pride, how we should look at the way that we sometimes desire to be first as well, that we should mortify that sin in our hearts, that we should be humble, that we should be Bereans, and that we should follow the path. Help us also to live for the way of the name, for the, the name of Jesus Christ, the only name where there is salvation, for there is salvation in none other than him. And bless these uh, teachings, we pray, to uh, the church as they contemplate these things. Blessings to all in Christ's name. Amen.